0: Thank you for that. Welcome everybody. It really is uh, great to see you. It is uh, great to be here. Uh, Speaking in this sermon series, as we look at that, the greatest of all sermons really, the uh, Sermon on the Mount in which the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to uh, radical living, what it is to uh, live as a citizen of the kingdom, what it is to uh, live under the rule and reign of the king. Um, There was an eight-year-old American boy called uh, Douglas, he had something of a, a troubled childhood, perhaps that's a bit of an understatement. His, his dad was an alcoholic, he was uh, abusive to his mother, and actually ended up um, uh, running off with his uh, mother's first cousin. And Douglas, along with his mother and brother, they, as a family, all made their way from America to England, basically to have a, a fresh start. And when they got there, his mother fell in love with, and later married, an English academic called Jack. Um, When Douglas first met Jack, he was a little bit unimpressed, but then came to know him as a friend and later to love him as a stepfather when his mother married him. One of the things that initially helped to break the ice between Douglas and Jack was a piece of furniture in Jack's house. Now, that may not be what you'd expect to excite a young child, but if I tell you that while Jack was known to all who knew him as Jack, that he's better known to us as C.S. Lewis... And when I tell you that piece of furniture uh, was a wardrobe in Jack's house, perhaps it'll start to make a little bit more sense. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Douglas loved those books and read those books. And he knew that a wardrobe in those stories was far more than just a piece of furniture. It was a portal into a new world, into a new kingdom, the kingdom of Narnia. And so when he saw this wardrobe in Jack's house, in C.S. Lewis's house, um, he was very excited to see it. And so he said, uh, with much excitement, is that the wardrobe? And Jack replied with a twinkle in his eye, well, it just might be. You know, I don't think you have to be an eight-year-old boy trying to escape a troubled childhood to appreciate the allure of the wardrobe, that yearning to leave this life behind and enter into an exciting new fantasy kingdom. Certainly when I was a young boy, I didn't have a troubled childhood, but I remember that yearning to find uh, other worlds. I remember reading the Chronicles of Narnia. I remember watching the BBC adaptations at the time and having that yearning to escape through a portal to find another world. By the age of 25, I have to tell you, that yearning hadn't gone at all. In fact, if anything, it was, it was even stronger. Uh, sadly, at that time, I wanted to escape the way I was living my life. And perhaps even more sadly, I wanted to escape who I'd become. And so that yearning to, to find a new kingdom was still there, but I was 25 years old, so I'd for, um, given up believing in fantastical uh, worlds anywhere. So I'd stopped looking in the backs of wardrobes. But then one day I became a Christian. And I found that actually becoming a Christian was not just taking on a new religion or some new ideas or some new practices or a new philosophy, that actually when I repented of my sins and put my faith in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, that actually I was stepping through a portal into a new kingdom, a kingdom even greater than the kingdom of Narnia, the kingdom of heaven itself. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about what life in that kingdom is like. You know, when you step through a portal into a new kingdom, you shouldn't be surprised if things are very different there, if it seems radically different even. And my goal then and my goal now, and probably yours as well, if you have become a Christian, if you step through that portal, is to make the most of life in that kingdom. I want to flourish in the kingdom of God. I want to live my best life now in the kingdom of God. And this particular passage that we're looking at today helps us a great deal with that. Because if you want to flourish in the kingdom, what you need to know is how that kingdom works and then how you can apply how it works so that you can make the most of life in that kingdom. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about how the kingdom works, where we get our authority, where we go for guidance, or if you like, what the kingdom law is, and then how we live that out to make the best of kingdom life. So I've called this uh, kingdom law and kingdom living. And so we can flourish, so we can live our best life. Now, we're going to consider those two things then, the nature of kingdom law and then the practice of kingdom living. So if you've never entered the kingdom, if you've never been a Christian, I want you to listen as we talk here. and Imagine a world where we actually lived according to this law, if we lived that out in kingdom life. And I will give you the opportunity at the end to step through that wardrobe into this kingdom, if you're already part of the kingdom then I'd ask you to incline your hearts and your ears and just listen to where we go for guidance and how we live it out that we might live our best life now. So the first thing we're going to consider then, the nature of kingdom law. So where do we go to once we step through the portal, once we're citizens of the kingdom, where do we go to for guidance? Where do we find our ultimate authority? Well, spoiler alert, it's the Bible, okay? But it isn't enough really just to say the Bible these days, and probably it hasn't been throughout church history, because at some time or other, there's always been discussions and disagreements about how the Bible should be interpreted, and heresies about how it should be interpreted. You know, do we, for example, just go on the words of Jesus? Do we just look at the Sermon on the Mount, for example? Do we deal with the whole New Testament? What do we do with the Old Testament? Do we follow it in full? Do we get rid of it altogether? Was Jesus there to overturn and correct the Old Testament? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about all that. Verse 17, we see this. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus says there, the law or the prophets, He's using a turn of phrase that they use to refer to the scriptures, as they were at that time, what we would call the Old Testament. The law being the first five books of Moses, and then in Hebrew thinking, the other books written by prophets. So by the law of the prophets, he means the scriptures. He's saying, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. What does he mean by that? Um, A few weeks ago, I had the, the pleasure of taking my eldest son, Jack, um, uh, my seven-year-old, to work with me. It was during the Easter holidays, not a lot going on at university, so I, I snuck him in, gave mum a bit of a break from at least one of her children uh, for a little while. So it's great to have him there, university, campus, university, quite an exciting place for a seven-year-old uh, to go. You should be able to see a photo of him here. This is him giving his, his very first lecture. You can see there, uh, nobody has turned up. But there's no shame in that. That's happened to his dad before. Um, <laughs> In fact, some of my best memories of lectures are when that happens. But anyway. <laughs> of all the cool stuff that I showed Jack that day, the historic sites and, and so on, you know, the Leicester Castle where Richard III was and this church where Geoffrey Chaucer uh, got married and this cool kit and all the stuff, none of that interested him at all. He just, All he was obsessed with was how big the buildings were. And one in particular, this six-storey building, and he loved this one because I said to him, do you know, Jack, when uh, Dad went home, when uh, the Prime Minister told us we had to stay in our houses, you remember that, the, the lockdown and all the uh, you know, working from home that went beyond that, that building wasn't there. But when Daddy came back, that building had just popped up out of nowhere. That particularly seemed to capture his imagination, so I had to quickly explain that it didn't really pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> Uh, that's a turn of phrase. And what I really meant was it wasn't there before and they just built it very quickly. But actually, I'd seen the plans. They'd turn them around on the internal communications. They'd give us an artist impression of what it had looked like. The plans had been there all along. They were in the mind of the creator for that building long before it popped up, if you like, when I got back. Now, I don't know anybody that returned to work after lockdown and all the working at home and so on and saw that building and said, oh my goodness, they've abolished the plans. No, they didn't abolish the plans for the building. They fulfilled the plans of the building. That building was what the plans were pointing to all along. And that is what Jesus is saying about the Old Testament, completely contradicting what some people have said throughout church history and what some people, even popular preachers, are saying today, that we can sort of get rid of the Old Testament, we correct the Old Testament, we can lay the Old Testament aside. No, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish it. It doesn't need to be abolished. It was pointing to me all along. I am fulfilling the Old Testament. In my ministry and in my teaching, I am part of the ongoing story. It's all pointing towards me. So we're not here to abolish it. Jesus is not here to destroy the Old Testament law. He's not there to correct anything that Moses said. In fact, Jesus has a very high view of the Old Testament. Look at this in verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, The old King James used to say not a jot or a tittle. Right? What it's referring to is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the, the yod, and the stroke of a pen bit there, or the tittle, isn't even a letter. You know, it's like you get a cross on a T, It's that kind of thing. What Jesus is saying is, no, you, you can't just take the bits that embarrass you about the Old Testament or embarrass modern people and just set them aside. No, all of that is the word of God and none of it will pass away. It has a kind of quality of existence, just like the heavens and the earth do. Yeah, you can pull the blind down and block out the sun, but it's still there. So is the law. It has that quality of existence within it and it will not pass away. Jesus had an incredibly high view of scripture. He held that it was divine, that it was from God, that it was authoritative. And he says that we should be the same. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? If he's the king and he points to the authority of Scripture, the Old Testament, but by logical extension, the New Testament as well, then we ought to live in it. And he says as much. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice it's not just you practice, but what you teach others with it. You know, there are certain preachers around uh, today who get very popular by just sort of cherry picking and preaching that which is palatable. But what Jesus says is they might be popular in this world, but they'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. We must preach the, the full counsel of God. We can't lay aside any part of the scriptures when we come to speak about them. We have to practice them all. So what Jesus is saying is, the word of God is our authority. It's where we go to for guidance. It's what the kingdom law is. That's ultimately where we go to. Old Testament and New Testament are the word of God. The old every bit and much the word of God as the New Testament. However... Because the Old Testament has been fulfilled, it's not the same to say that while you're affirming the authority and divinity and the importance of the Old Testament is not the same as affirming its applicability. Is that a word? I hope it is now. Okay? It doesn't mean that the Old Testament applies in every single way that it always used to to our lives today. In short, some of the Old Testament law has fulfilled its purpose and no longer applies to our lives today. Still the word of God, but it no longer applies in our lives today. Other parts of the law still apply because they are more eternal, moral laws, if you like. Let me give you an example if we go back to the building example. Let me tell you about when that building was being built, the one that popped up out of nowhere. There were at least two laws that I'm going to pick out that held sway, that presided over that building site while it was being built. One law, you had to wear a hard hat when you were on the building site. the second law that held sway over that building site, uh, you had to refrain from attacking anyone with a machete uh, while it was being built. Okay, a little bit extreme, but I'm trying to make a point here. now that the plans have been fulfilled and the building is no longer a building site, but instead a building full of classrooms, can I ask you, what do you think? Do you have to wear a hard hat every time you go and sit down with your books in that classroom? Oh, the purpose of wearing a hard hat has now been fulfilled because the building has been complete. And therefore, that rule, that law, no longer applies in our lives today. Do you still have to refrain from attacking anyone with a machete? In fact, you probably shouldn't take one to class. But anyway, do you still have to refrain from that? Yes, you do. See, one of them has been fulfilled. But the other is an eternal rule that carries on. And it's the same with the way we apply the Old Testament. This is really important because Christians often get accused of hypocrisy. We say that this particular part of the Bible, you have to live by this, even if it's unpopular today. And people say, oh, well, yeah, but I don't see you sacrificing animals. I don't see you refraining from eating pork. And yet those are rules that are in the Bible. Those are things that are in the Old Testament. But what they're doing is they're pointing to things that no longer apply, that have been fulfilled. It says in Mark chapter 7 that all foods have now been made clean. Those food laws were to help set us apart. Now we're set apart in Christ. We no longer uh, need them, and they've been overturned. The sacrificial system was fulfilled in Jesus. It was pointing towards him all along, so it no longer applies in our life. But do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Those are moral laws, eternal laws. Those continue to this day. So the simplest way to put this is that the word of God is the Word of God. The whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're all the world of God. But when we apply the Bible today, we apply and interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And much of the New Testament is concerned with what we apply and what we don't apply today. And so I have a question for you. How Do you share the same esteem for the Scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ had? If you're going to go to an authority as a kingdom citizen, Have you got the same appreciation for the scriptures as the king has? How are you getting on with your Bible study, with your Bible in a year? I'm feeling rather smug today. I'm within about three or four days of the actual Bible in a year day that I should be on. That's a bit of a record for me. But seriously, when you get guidance, when you've got a problem in this world, where do you go? you know, there are great resources on the internet. You can speak to psychologists and self-help books and so on. And I think all of that stuff can be good stuff, but your ultimate authority, where you check all that through, ought to be the Bible. We want to do everything that is biblical and cut out of our lives everything which is not. So where do we get our kingdom law that we can make the most of life in this kingdom? It's the Bible. It's the word of God. So then the nature of kingdom law is that the whole Bible, the whole world, it's God breathed, it's useful. But how do we actually live that out in our lives then? How do we practically apply that when it comes to kingdom living, if you like? I mean, if we've got so far in the message today, if we've only looked at point one, then we'll be thinking to ourselves, well, hang on, I feel rather bad for the way I've treated the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I mean, they are much maligned in the scriptures. And yet, aren't they the kind of people we ought to be? If you're supposed to have a very high view of Scripture, isn't that exactly the kind of person we should be? Because after all, whatever else the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did, they tried to keep the law. They were righteous in terms of keeping the law. They took the Scriptures incredibly seriously. So is Jesus basically saying that they should be our role models? Well, not quite. Look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse used to really scare me. (laughs) I thought, if they are righteous, does that mean just to to get into the kingdom or be part of the kingdom, I've got to meet their righteousness and then surpass it? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not complaining about their so-called love of the scriptures. He's complaining about their shallow interpretation of the scriptures and of the law. See, what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were obsessed with is the external formalities of the law, what we might call legalism that's what got to them, that's what, it wasn't actually an internal heart change, but kingdom living ought to be about an internal heart change, the spirit coming to live on, it was always meant to be this way, in fact prophesied in the Old Testament, Jeremiah tells us what kingdom living, what new covenant living will be like, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord, I will put the law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were obsessed with the external formalities, looking good. Do you remember Jesus called them a whitewashed tomb? What a horrible image. Yeah, on the outside, nice and clean, looks good. Go on the inside, it's a rotting, festering corpse. That was the Pharisees, obsessed with the external uninterested on the actual heart and spirit of the law. Kingdom life is about the eternal heart and spirit of the law. That's what he wants us to be like. That's what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. And he then exemplifies this by giving six practical outworkings of this. Six different examples where he contrasts the interpretation of the scriptures from the scribes and Pharisees and the rabbis of the day, and then he gives his interpretation of the law, how we really ought to be living it out in our lives today. Of the six, we're only looking at two today, don't worry. Okay, so we're looking at two today, we'll cover the other four in the rest of the sermon series, but he looks at murder and he looks at adultery. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Notice he says, you have heard. Not, it is written. If he said it is written, he'd be saying this is in the Bible. And then he would be contradicting the Old Testament. But he says, you have heard. In other words, he's talking about the uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and so on, their interpretation of the Old Testament law. He said, you've heard that. And then, verse 22, but I tell you. So he's contrasting with all of these things. You've heard how they interpret it, but here's the real truth. Here's how I interpret it. Here's what the law is really meant to do and how you're really meant to live it out in the kingdom. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, that's a term of insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. In other words, what you've got with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if you imagine an iceberg, I don't know if you know this, but only 10% of the iceberg is actually above water, the bit that we see. The other 90% is below the water level. They treated the law like that iceberg. So if you have the law of do not murder, the bit they were interested in was the 10%, that do not murder above the sea level. What Jesus is saying is you've got to get deeper than that. He's not come to destroy the law, he's come to deepen it. You might have murder above, but what's beneath all that? What is it that causes someone to actually cross that line and kill another human being? It's anger, it's bitterness, it's rage against another person, it's treating other people as though they're not fully human with disrespect. And Jesus is saying, they're obsessed with the outward bit, the bit above the water level. You've got to get deeper to live in this kingdom and I've given you my spirit that you might be able to do that. So I have a question for you. How are you getting on with your anger? You know, I've, I've tended to think with, with um, uh, all of my anger when I sort of reviewed this a few years back, particularly when I was getting very tired when the first couple of boys were very young, I remember thinking, well, am I susceptible here to righteous anger? You know, trying to get myself a bit of a, a, bit of a let out. Because there is such a thing. You know, we often use the example of Jesus in the temple driving out the money changers. I came to the conclusion that 98% of my anger is unrighteous. <laughs> and I... I I don't want to be accusative, but I think it's the case for most of us. And what God wants us to do is deal with it. And we see in these scriptures, what he basically says is this, is the Pharisees will say, look, as long as you haven't actually killed someone, you're fine, you're fulfilling the law. Jesus says, no, don't tolerate any of that stuff below the water level, deep within you. You've still got a problem if it's like that. You've got to take it seriously, and you've got to deal with it urgently. And he tells us how to deal with it. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. So he's talking to them in their time and how they would worship. He's saying that actually reconciling with somebody that you're in a feud with, that you're angry with, that you're bitter with, that is actually takes precedence even over worship. You know? If Dave Smith ever catches you out for being late to worship, you can just say, well, I was settling an argument with someone I was reconciling. It's funny. He's saying, you've got to get that straight. It's a matter of seriousness, and it's a matter of urgency. You know, and I think in my own heart, the things that make me angry, you know, some of the greatest blessings in my life are my three boys, Jack, Isaac, and Arlo. Three of the things that make me most angry in my life are my three boys, Jack, Isaac, and Arlo. I've got Arlo does his bit. He's too cute to get really angry with. But Arlo does his bit keeping me up all night. And then when I'm you know, tired and um, irascible and all that kind of stuff, I then have the other two, the five and the seven-year-old, then trying to push my buttons and push boundaries and so on. Okay? Now, when I get angry with them, and I do... When I lose my temper with them, I shout at them or that kind of thing. Whose responsibility do you think it is to reconcile and get on the front foot and and go and say sorry in the first place? You know, should I wait it out and wait for a five- and a seven-year-old to say, Father, we've been thinking, we've been disrespectful to you, we wound you up, you're tired, you're preparing for a sermon, you've had a lot on. And so we would like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm the grown-up, you know. And in those situations sometimes I've realised that actually my... My expectations of them are totally unfair. I'm basically saying, oh my goodness, can you not just behave like two well-adjusted 35-year-olds and understand what's going on? Is that too much to ask? And of course, the answer is yes, it is. So what I've tried to model for them, actually, is that I'm going to lose my temper and it's going to happen, but there's forgiveness, there's grace in the kingdom, but I'm called to something higher. And I want to abide by that. I want them to see that dad's not an angry dad that he can say sorry when it's... So I want to go to them and say, boys, I'm sorry. Most of the time, they haven't got a clue what I think about. I don't think they're very intimidated by my anger. They normally just laugh at me. But nevertheless, I want to model that and say, I'm sorry. Equally in marriage, you know, I remember when I was getting married and reading books about, you know, men taking the lead and all that kind of stuff. One of the places when I learned that leading in marriage is actually about servant leadership like Jesus... One of the ways I've realised, and I think I've done, I've made lots of mistakes in marriage, but one of the things I think I've got right is that when there's a marital dispute, when we fall out, is that I try and be the one to take the lead in reconciling and coming and saying sorry. Even if I think I'm only responsible for 10% of the argument, I will still go to Becky and say, Becky, I'd like to say, I'm sorry for my 10%. Okay? As soon as you find it in your heart to say sorry for your 90%, I will be... No. Can i give you a tip. Don't put a number on it, okay? <clears throat> and joking apart, actually, you know, because of our egos, our pride and all that kind of stuff, we, we, we will probably misinterpret the percentage that's us. So why not forget about all that? Just make the goal that we reconcile. Put your pride aside and let's just both say sorry to each other that we can move on. <clears throat> And you know, the other place where I see anger, I'm not too bad with this, I have to say, like at work, but I think it's just my personality type. I'm quite agreeable. I don't like to fall out with people at work. But as I've sort of, you know, risen up a little bit at work, I'm a programme leader, I'm a line manager, I have to get involved in disputes a little bit more. And I do find that actually lots of people in work, they fall out with each other. And I just think, it costs so much time and effort to put these things back when two uh, you know, grown adults can't actually work together properly. And you just wish they'd go and reconcile so that everyone can just get back to work and get on with things and we don't have to deal with this. I think as Christians in the workplace, we want to show what kingdom living is like and be on the front foot and say sorry when we've done anything wrong and caused a feud or anything like that. So my question for you is, is there anything in your heart that you're tolerating that's below the water level right now that could one day just erupt into something far worse? Perhaps not murder, but, you know, something. I mean, I don't think Will Smith... Uh, woke up on the morning of the Oscars thinking I'm going to go and slap one of the presenters in the face and get banned for the Oscars for years. I think there are things probably going on below the water level that will make someone think it's okay to do that in that moment. What are the things we're tolerating in our heart that could And then it's a similar point Jesus makes with adultery. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now that is written in the Bible but he's saying the interpretation of it is just taken at face value. Just well that's it. You you are fulfilling the law if you just refrain from having sex with somebody who's not your husband or is not your wife. But actually Jesus is saying it's deep in that. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just an external thing. It's not just a bit above the water level. It's the whole iceberg. It's the lust below the line. You know, not the first look, but the second look and the the fantasy and the things you're looking at, perhaps on TV or on your computer or uh, flirtation with a colleague. It's those kind of things below the water level that Jesus is saying, if you're truly to fulfill the law, I'm not here to destroy it, I'm here to deepen it. You've got to deal with that. Don't tolerate those things in your heart. I remember years ago, waking up um, one morning, I think one of the first things I did was looked online and... There was this bombshell online that uh, this preacher that we knew it was a UK preacher as well. So you sometimes do hear about these things, big ministries. But this one closer to home, someone that I respected, someone that I thought was very much anointed by the Lord, had had an affair and left his wife and his kids. You know, I found out later he was completely estranged from from his kids. You know, and I just think about it. I, thinking, I can't imagine not being able to. I can't imagine that anything is worth not being able to see my wife and kids and being estranged from them. And I remember talking to a friend about it because they are pretty gutted about this. Um, my mate Liam, and, and just saying to him, like, you know, can you believe this? And, and you know, how does that happen when someone's anointed and they know the Bible so well and all this kind of, And I remember Liam saying to me, I've never forgotten it. Said, Tom, that kind of thing doesn't happen overnight. Now, don't get me wrong; there may be moments of madness where people are living, you know, and then all of a sudden something blows up. But ninety-nine percent of the time, I think Liam's absolutely right. That you tolerate little things in your heart. You don't do something about it. You don't deal with them seriously. You don't deal with them urgently and they can grow and explode into something far worse and cause waves of devastation in people's lives. And again, my question for you, what are you tolerating in the area of lust right now? What are you thinking? It's no big deal. Everybody does it. You know, maybe people who speak, they have to deal with those kind of things. Maybe people in ministry or the Holy Joes or whatever, they have to worry about it, but not me. What are you tolerating in your heart right now? Jesus is with his finger pointing on those things and wanting to do some deep heart surgery right to get to it, to, to, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to give you his Holy Spirit. And can you imagine if we dealt with all that stuff so at Kingsgate and perhaps across the whole church in the UK and the world, we could actually be that shining light that God always wanted to, to, to have a kingdom. Where people don't lose their tempers, where their kids aren't frightened of their father or their mother's temper, or you know, people at work look to that person and say they get on with everybody. They just seem to manage everything. When they fall out, they reconcile. You know, they've got a clean bill of health when it comes to affairs and, and things like that. They, you know, they... they, they They don't look at that person when they walk across the office. If we were the shining lights, if we had a king, if we truly valued kingdom values and we lived as apprentices of our king, can you imagine the difference it would make right across this community, across this church, across the world, if we could do... Well, we've got the opportunity. Jesus is calling us to do this. He's calling us to embrace his Holy Spirit, to embrace this higher living. And one day we will live in a kingdom where the kingdom looks exactly like this. A perfect life, absence of murder, of anger, of adultery, of of lust. A perfect kingdom that will all work. Well, let's start bringing that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven today. And if you share that desire, I'd love us to respond together. If you wouldn't mind just standing to your feet right now. First of all, it might be that you've never become a Christian. You've never entered the kingdom. You've never... Gone through the wardrobe, if you like. Would you like to come through the wardrobe today to come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I'm talking about some very difficult, hard living, deep stuff here, but he will give you his Holy Spirit so that you can live this way. This is an aspirational message, not a beat you down message. If you wanna live like that, if you wanna move away from some of the things that perhaps give you shame or some of that anger. You know, I've met so many um, men in my life when they give their testimonies, they said the moment they became a Christian, so much anger just left them. Jesus wants to deal with that and help you. If that's you, in a moment, we're going to sing a song. Come to the altar, embrace the Lord Jesus, turn away from your sin, pledge to give your life to him. And if you do that at the end, there'll be an opportunity uh, to speak to other people about that step. But for the rest of us, we're going to sing that song in just a moment. Come to the altar, come to the Father's arms. Perhaps you are in this um, place of anger or bitterness or resentment with someone, perhaps something came up in your heart, perhaps it's lust, you know, you're tolerating something right now. Well, this is the time to lay it aside, to come to the altar, to come to the Father's arms. And we're gonna sing. And I want you to, as you worship, to in your own heart, your own spirit, your own mind, put aside that sin, turn away from it, lay down those things, come to the Father's arms. And then I'm gonna come back on and we're gonna do some open heart surgery.